You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today's scripture reading is Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. Follow along with me. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done a great thing for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning. Maybe maybe be seated. Good to be with you as we continue to celebrate uh, the birth of Christ in this Advent season. Uh, we do not have Redemption Kids today. Uh, kids, you're not a burden, you're a blessing. Uh, if we do have kids' sermon notes, if that would serve you. We have totes in the hallway as well. We do have a restless kids' room, so uh, get a little, little, little squirrely. You can just go right across the hall if that serves you, and we pump in the sermon into that room. So if that serves you, parents, uh, feel free to use that. Well, as you know, we're still in the Advent season. Sermon series is called The Awe and Wonder of, of Christmas, an attempt to recapture the sense of awe of the birth of Christ, sense of wonder of the birth of Christ. Like I was thinking about that this morning when I, right after I woke up. And I think this temptation exists for all of us in that things can become dull over time. Things that we commonly do, things we commonly know. Sometimes you just take it for granted. It becomes dull. And I think one of the attempts of this sermon series as we lead up to Christmas Day is to recapture that sense of awe, recapture that sense of wonder. After working on my sermon on Friday, I did the uh, dastardly thing and got onto Facebook. (laughs) Uh, and as I was scrolling through, I, I bumped into part of a sermon from a prominent pastor. If I said the name, you all would know. This pastor has his own like Wikipedia page. He's in the Atlanta metro. His church, if you count all the campuses, is like 40,000 people. I use church in air quotes there. This guy has a lot of influence. And the portion of the sermon that I listened to was given during Advent. It was clear. The content and then the staging, right? Trees, lights, whole, the whole thing. This man said that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not essential. I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. And I quote, If somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, then I am not all that concerned about how they got into the world. Like, let that land on you. 
Because that happened, I don't need to worry about that. He did rightly highlight the importance of the resurrection, but at the cost of dismissing the virgin birth of Christ. Here's another quote. Christianity, this is his quote, Christianity does not hinge on the truth or even the stories surrounding the birth of Christ. Like at that point, I just about fell out of my chair. I'm just like, y'all know this guy. His influence is large. He's on the radio. And I'm like, you better not have a Christmas tree or a manger scene in your house if that's how you're going to talk about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. What this megachurch pastor is saying is that everything I preached last week doesn't matter. The Nicene Creed, like historic creeds that definitively talk about who Jesus is, does not matter. The Chalcedonian definition, even if you don't know what that means, it's a big deal. That does not matter. The Bible and church history does not matter. If Augustine, Calvin, or Luther had heard this man, he would have been driven out of the church and condemned as a heretic. I promise you, that would have happened. We're a more kinder culture. Athanasius, he wrote this book right here. Love it. I've highlighted it before, on the Incarnation, right? A church father from the 4th century. One of the most important books in church history. And he rightly traces how the Incarnation of Jesus Christ is tied to creation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and second coming. He would have been turning over in his grave if he heard this pastor dismiss the birth of Christ as if it was some type of myth. This pastor from Atlanta believes it does not matter if Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's functionally, at the end of the day, that's what he's saying. It doesn't matter. The miraculous conception. Heck, Joseph may as well be Jesus' biological father, father, according to this pastor. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is what you get from churches that do not care about theology. Right? There is no atonement at the cross, and there is no resurrection without the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus. We're able to celebrate the Lord's table every single Sunday because of what we're talking about this Advent season. As the kids say, um, I know I'm coming out hot this morning. I acknowledge that. Perhaps I got a rock in my shoe a little bit from this from hearing this sermon, I acknowledge that. But my goal is to not question or dismiss the virgin birth of Christ, but my goal is to have us exalt with Mary all that God has done through the miraculous. To celebrate, not to question. May we be in awe and wonder over one of the most significant events throughout all of human history. Throughout all of human history. And a lot of things have happened since the creation of the world. So I'm going to pray, lower my temperature, and we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have already spoken through your word. Help me to be faithful to what you've said. I pray for my dear friends in front of me. Lord, that in the power of the Spirit, you be speaking and working on their hearts. 
But Lord, help us to all be in awe and wonder of the miraculous, in particular as we look and continue to look at the miraculous conception of Mary and the Savior of the world being born to the Virgin Mary. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday I suggested, as I've been saying, that we should be left in awe and wonder because of the miraculous conception of Mary. Not only was Mary's conception a miracle, but there were events leading up and surrounding her conception that caused to cause us to be in awe and wonder. We think about her relationship with Elizabeth and her eventual birth to John the Baptist. There is something about the miraculous that should cause us to step back and just say, wow, wow. We should step back and marvel. We should be in awe of the God who performs these miracles. It is important to remember that the Christian faith hinges upon, in part, by believing in the miraculous. It really does. The moment you try to remove the miraculous from the Bible and from history, you begin to move away from historic Orthodox Christianity. Only Jesus was born of a virgin. So yes, we we should be in awe of the miraculous. And we should be led to respond in praise. And that's what we have this morning. Through music, we through this music, the song of Mary, we, we see God's character. We know who God is and what God has done through history with this song. We see what God has done leading up to the past and past the birth of Christ. Mary's song has been historically called the Magnificat. The word Magnificat comes from a Latin word, which simply means to magnify, which I'll talk about here in a few minutes. You'll find the Magnificat fully sung, not in part, but fully sung in a lot of Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, and Anglican churches. A lot of churches with strong liturgical vibes, right? They'll sing the entire thing, not just pick and choose. I'm, I'm okay with that. We're going to sing a song in a little bit that, that is coming from part of the Magnificat. But these, some of these other traditions are like, no, we're going to sing the whole thing. So this passage, I think, and this song is an excellent opportunity to explain how songs are chosen at Redemption Hill. And I'm going to show you what we see in the Magnificat as a bit of a template for what we do up here every single Sunday. First, Mary sings about what is true, right? She's singing about truth. And now I know it's stating the obvious, but we need to sing truth every single Sunday. How is truth tested? Against the Word of God. And I will show you this morning that Mary's song is profoundly true because what she sings is rooted in God's Word, in particular the Old Testament. Like, it's amazing, like when you get into the, the nitty gritty of it, like, what she's singing is rooted in her scripture. So that's really important. Like, we want to sing songs that are grounded in truth. Second, Mary's song is poetic, which means it's like singable. Some really good Christian songs are challenging to sing in a congregational setting. Like, for the last eight years, almost every Sunday, almost every Sunday, I drive to church listening to 
a Christian music, musician named Josh Garrels. Right? Woohoo indeed. Great guy. I mean, I don't know him personally, but great artist. Seems to be a great guy. Love his music, right? Probably couldn't sing one of his songs in church. <laughs> it's, just, it's not singable, right? You can sing the Magnificat, as we'll do a bit this morning when I'm done preaching and after communion. So singable. Third, what we sing needs to have solid Orthodox theology. I'm making a distinction from the first point. The first point is about connecting truth to Scripture and then singing about it. The third point is taking what we read in God's Word and pro- proclaiming theology to one another and in praise to God. Horizontal, vertical. It's all happening at the same time. For example, we sing about the God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. That's good theology. We want to sing good theology. Here's a fourth and final lesson we can learn, at least on the front end, from Mary's song. We need to sing about the characteristics or attributes of God. We need to declare who God is. This fourth point is thoroughly highlighted in Mary's song. It's about the character of God. Not only what he has done, but who he, what, who he is, and that flows forth to his creation. So his character matters. Christians understand that character matters. For example, if I give you $100 because I like you, because I want you to like me, I am giving for like a self-centered purpose. My character can be questioned. However, if I give you 100 bucks because I'm trying to help you pay the electric bill, I'm giving sacrificially, right? That's different. I, I give because I care. Now, is it possible for motives to be mixed? Sure. But what we see with the Magnificat is God's character should not be questioned. Mary does not question God. God is faithful in the moment and for all time. Now, is Mary's song unique because of her circumstances? Of course, right? Of course. When we read, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, this is Gabriel talking, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, a unique and significant event has taken place in Mary's life. No one else in history can claim Mary's story for their own. But we can sing and respond with Mary about the character of God. We must sing praise to God because of who he is and what he has providentially done throughout history. Therefore, Mary's song is our song because Mary's God is our God. Mary is the composer and the author, and we have the privilege to sing her song. Before looking at the fine details of the song, I want to point out two broad features. Right? This gets into kind of the character of God. First, Mary rightly sings about the mercy of God. God is merciful. Mercy is foundational to the character of God. And in a moment, we'll see who the objects of God's mercy are. Second, Mary sings about God's judgment. The second broad feature of the Magnificat is not common to sing in our modern contemporary music, (laughs) right? You might have a hard time finding a song on Christian radio where the song's central theme is the judgment of God. (laughs) Hard to find. I sent the following text to Ryan on Wednesday, and I an actual quote. 
Super duper random question. I literally use the word super duper. Uh, super duper random question. Is there a song we, we have used that talks about God judging others? <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to like, he knows a lot about music. I like some things, but he knows a lot more. I want some expert advice. Now notice what I did not ask in my question. I did not ask if we sing about God being a righteous judge. I wondered if there are songs about the object of God's judgment. Here's Ryan's response. It's a great response, by the way. Impeccatory psalms just don't have the same songwriting appeal. <laughs> right? He's not wrong. <laughs> Other than Mary, King David, and a few others who wrote in the psalms, there's a, there are not a lot of imprecatory songs out there. For 21st century Christians, a way to suck the joy out of singing is to sing about the judgment of God. But that's what we see with Mary. That's part of what we see with Mary in her song, the Magnificat. And that's what we see with many imprecatory songs in the book of Psalms. I mean, perhaps we need to recapture a biblical view of God's judgment and, why it, and what it means to sing about God's righteousness, right? Mary certainly includes the judgment of God here. As I was thinking about how to summarize Mary's song, a repeated passage kind of came to mind. I think it fits perfectly. Uh, it's James 4, 6. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to say it to you. God opposes the proud and sh- shows favor to the humble. Maybe here is Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, he attends the lowly. Right? He cares for the lowly. He's with the lowly. But the proud, he knows from afar. You see a clear distinction between how God interacts with the lowly and the proud. And I could also quote Job twenty two twenty nine, Proverbs 3, verse 34, Proverbs 29, verse 23, and Matthew 23, verse 12, just to name a few passages that have this exact theme. God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble, giving favor to the humble. And last week we saw the angel Gabriel telling Mary, God has found favor with you. Mary, who is lowly. So the theme is quite evident in the Bible, and Mary rightly picks it up in the Magnificat. God cares for the lowly and humble, but he takes another approach with the proud. With these broad strokes in view, let's look at the details of this song. When Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, she broke out in straight-up praise. Straight-up praise. She was hanging out with Elizabeth. And then all of a sudden she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When when Mary says, My soul magnifies, she is saying that her soul is enlarged for more of God. We saw last week that Mary declared without hesitation that she is a servant of the Lord. But more than a servant, she is a woman who seeks after the Lord. Mary approaches the throne room of God and tells the king that as a servant, she wants to know more of him. She wants to glorify him. So, so her posture, just right out, of the, right out of the Magnificat, her posture should be our posture. We come ready to sing praise to magnify God, to glorify God. But also notice the declarative truths being stated here. 
She is saying and saying and singing to her God and Savior. I find the first few words of the Magnificat extremely interesting, and here's why. To see that Mary is singing to her God is not surprising, right? But for her to sing, my Savior, is packed with theological and historical meaning. In our uh, evangelical circles, we tend to limit or delimit the meaning of the word being saved. Salvation is personal, and it's between like me and God, right? you and God. We think merely in this vertical sense. In one sense, Mary affirms this meaning of salvation, certainly. Mary is saying that God is her source of salvation. Mary is making this song personal. And so, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do the same. She sings in verse 48 and 49, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So the singular pronoun, me and my, are very appropriate. But Mary would have understood her Savior and her salvation in light of her religious traditions and history. Mary would have understood her personal salvation in the historical succession of people and events going back all the way to the Garden of Eden. She's actually very much connected to the whole Here are a few examples that would have been the context for her understanding of salvation. In the book of Exodus, we read that the people of God were in slavery in Egypt, right? And God saved and delivered his people out of Egypt. Prior to Christ, this would have been the pinnacle moment of history, right? Prior to Christ, everyone who had faith in God would have been like, do you remember the Exodus? That was their moment. We see there that in this pinnacle moment in history that, that speaks about the object of God's collective salvation. An entire people was able to say, we've been delivered, we've been saved. And by the way, Christian, this history that I'm talking about is your history. The second historical marker, there's many more, but I'm just pointing out a few. The second historical marker would have been the exile of God's people in Babylon, right? You might remember from the Old Testament historical books that God gave the land to his people, right? As promised. I'm going to give you the land. Here you go. Land flown with milk and honey. God got them there. But guess what? God's people decided to compromise their faith. What? By compromising with the culture. As I say at the Powers House, and I'm editing this, play dumb games, win dumb prizes. And that's what happened. God gave them the land and they... Decided to squander the inheritance. And then first, the Babylonians came in and took Israel into exile. And later, the Assyrians took the other half, Judah, into captivity. But God is faithful. And what did he do? He left a remnant. God will use the remnant to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple under the Persian Empire. Years later, go to Nehemiah and Ezra. The return of God's people would have been seen as another salvation moment. Here's one more example that builds out the context of Mary's song, why she sings to her God and her Savior. For over 400 years prior to the preaching of John the Baptist and the life of Christ, God shut the mouths of the prophets. The prophet Malachi was probably the last prophet of our Old Testament. 
What was going on during this 400-year silence leading up to the birth of Christ? The Greeks overtook the land, in particular Alexander the Great. Eventually, the Romans kicked out the Greeks. And in between all this fighting, who do you have? The people of God. You have the people of God. So, do you see what's happening? Salvation is certainly personal and spiritual, without a doubt, but it is also communal and temporal. We limit our understanding of God's salvation to the former, and we miss the, last, miss the latter. I am suggesting to you that when you sing, my spirit rejoices in my God and Savior, that you have the entire scope of history in view, all that God has done, along with the birth, crucifixion, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus Christ. Because there will be a day when the temporal things of this, of this world will be renewed and restored. Jesus will come back to complete salvation for the entire world. He will complete redemption for the entire world. In this respect, this kind of hit me like a two-by-four over the head. In this respect, the first century Jews were not completely crazy about their expectations for a future Messiah. Like, this was, seemed like a crazy idea at the time, and I, I ran it by Sharice, and the crazy meter didn't go off. So I was happy about that. Thank you. They, they wanted the land back, right? This is the expectation before Christ about a future Messiah. They wanted the land back. They wanted peace. How are these expectations different for what we hope for at Jesus' second advent, right? How are they different? What is remarkable about Mary singing these words is that the Savior, her Savior, was in her womb. She is the mother of Jesus, and in a very real sense, she is also the mother of God. Now let's look at the two broad strokes that shape the content of the song. We read about the mercy of God in verse 50, right? And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. All the historical events mentioned above are God, is God's mercy on display. This attribute of God manifests itself over and over and over. Those who have a reverential fear of God, you, you know his mercy. You know it. Once again, notice how Mary's song is connected to history. Generations of people have experienced God's mercy from generation to generation. Even when God's people don't deserve his mercy, God has given mercy. When I use the expression... I use it with people when I go to a cafe or whatever. How are you doing? I say, I'm better than I deserve. I say it all the time. Many unusual responses come from that statement. They're like, huh? What does that mean? Surely you deserve better. Under, underneath that expression, I am better than I deserve, is an acknowledgement that God has been merciful to me over and over and over. Apart from Christ, God has every right to judge and smite me because of my sin. And God's mercy extends beyond you and me and to a collective people. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Here, here's a crucial point about verse 54. 
the manifestation of God's mercy is directly tied to God's merciful character, right? With human words, we sing, God remembers his mercy. God remembers his covenant he made with his people. Therefore, God sovereignly intervenes to help his people. We, we sing things like that. The emphasis here, though, is not on us remembering God's mercy, although that is happening, right? We want to remind ourselves. The emphasis here is that God, it is God who is merciful. We are singing about this part of the character of God. The object of God's sovereign mercy are not only for those who fear him, but what do we read here? For the humble and lowly? We read and sing in verse 48, For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, Mary sings. And then in verse 20, 52 and 53, we read, And God has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. I love this part of the Magnificat. Yes, we read about God's mercy. And mercy is an avenue for God to express his, his care and provision. It's an avenue for God to express his love to his covenant people. Again, as we consider the character of God, Mary and we can testify that God's heart is for the lowly and the humble. Like a reason why I was eager to preach this passage is because of what we read in verse 52 and 53. Like, this is like kind of a Christmas song, and I know every Christmas is, can be a time of mixed emotions for some people. It can be a time of joy for sure, but for some it's a time of sadness. You lose a loved one. Because life is messy, Christmas can be a time of mourning. It is a time that conjures up feelings of grief, perhaps. There's perhaps pain and sorrow. If you count yourself among those who have mixed emotions this Advent, then I want you to see the heart of God for the lowly and humble. Right? I want you to see God's heart for you. What do we read in verse 53? God fills the hungry with good things. Are you hungry this morning? If so, God invites you to a dinner table filled with more goodness than what you will experience on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. God always cares and provides for his people. If there is one resounding theme, if there is a banner that sits over this song, it is this. God is faithful. Without saying the word faithful in this song, that, was, that is what Mary is declaring. From generation to generation, God has been faithful to his people. He continues to extend mercy to his people. We, the lowly, the humble, the destitute, God has us. God is always faithful. God is faithful to care for the humble and lowly. And here's the other, other broad theme, right? God is also faithful to deal with the proud. And this is the more jarring part, in one sense, of the Magnificat. This is what we don't sing. I want to introduce this aspect of the Magnificat by going to Luke 18, where Jesus tells a story. The author, Luke, recounts, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
That's what Jesus picks up. Two men went into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and another, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this. I just think about this in the most arrogant and and haughty posture. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pause right there. This wicked sinner, this wicked tax collector, right? This lowly tax collector. He's the one who receives mercy. Jesus continues to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to recognize something that I, th- that I haven't heard much from teachers, pastors, theologians, when they talk about this passage. Jesus is not going after the acts of worship of the Pharisee. That's not what's happening here at all. I mean, he, he fasted twice a day, or fi- twice a week. He tithed. And Jesus tells us to fast and give in the Sermon on the Mount. We've gone through that recently. Jesus isn't going after what the Pharisee is doing. But the Pharisee played the Christian game. He did the Christian dance so he could feel morally superior over that tax collector. Over the extortioner. Over the adulterer. Over the unjust. The Pharisee lived his religious life with pride. Pride is the problem. And notice the response from the tax collector. Like he's, he's in the corner. It's like if he was here at church, he'd be in the corner during worship and song with his head down, beating his chest, and pleading with God for his mercy. And that should be all of us. After the tax collector has been forgiven, what should he do? Yeah, he should go fast. He should pray. He should give. But do it all in humility. All in humility. In Luke 18 and in the Magnificat, we see a contrast, as I hope you're seeing, between the humble and the proud. We know the type of person whom God extends his mercy. We also see the kind of person that God extends judgment to. Here's what Christians do not sing, especially during the Advent season. Here's verse 51 and 52. He has shown strength with his arm. Okay, so far so good. Not too edgy yet, right? He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. Okay, you know, just kind of a spiritual thing, working on the heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Oh, that sounds like something's actually going on here. God sees the heart of the proud, but our righteous God acts upon the proud 
It says in verse 51 that God scatters the proud. Now, now pause there for a moment. Where else in the Bible did God actually and justly scatter proud people? How about Genesis 11, when men built a tower? Why was the tower built? Tower Babel? In pride. Men wanted to be like God. It is a perpetual problem of humanity that goes back to the garden. We know from 1 Samuel 17 that God scattered the Philistines after David beat Goliath. Mary picks up on this theme because she knows God is faithful to distribute justice to the proud. There is no president, no prime minister, no king, no group of people or nation that God cannot bring down. God can bring down our president and then the next president and the one after that, if he so chooses. And not just through an election. He did far worse with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Hear this from Daniel too, speaking of the book of Daniel. He changes times and seasons, and the context here is Nebuchadnezzar. He changes times and seasons, talking about God. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And here's the application point we need to make. God continues to execute judgment on the proud and unrepentant sinner. Right? God can and will topple nations that he determines to be an abomination, if he so chooses, if that is a part of his will. God continues to scatter according to his sovereign will. Now, we are comfortable affirming God's judgment in the past, right? Like, God judged whoever or whatever back then because we're emotionally disconnected, <laughs> right? Like, if I didn't live through it, I'm kind of like, yeah, God judged, God judged, of course, why not? Because that's biblical. But in, it is, in my opinion, that Christians have a harder time coming to terms with God's judgment in the present. God continues to scatter the proud who mock him and defile his ways. What I'm not saying, for example, that Hurricane Katrina was the judgment of God on New Orleans. Right? I heard a lot of that after 2005. Such proclamations are arrogant and proud because a person implies that they know the mind of God. I do not know, and you do not, do not know, for the reason why Hurricane Katrina hit the city of New Orleans and caused massive destruction. What Christians can say with complete assurance is that God continues to enact his justice upon sin. We can also say and sing that God is utterly sovereign over all things, including Hurricane Katrina. Like, we should sing about these truths, even if we don't know why. The contrast between the humble and the proud is advanced in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away. In verse 53, we see that God cares and provides for the hungry. And I've already mentioned that. The contrast to that statement is that God sends away the rich. The indictment is not on wealth, but what wealth can do to a person, right? The temptation toward arrogance, pride, haughtiness. That's what Mary is singing about. I want to suggest to you this morning that the Magnificat is not only a song for Mary, but a song for our moment. 
Since Genesis 3, the battle between pride and humility goes on. You, you may feel it within your own soul, right? The battle between good and evil persists. But what do we know? What can we be sure of? What can we sing about? God will take care of the humble and the lowly. And God will judge, say, the human trafficker if they do not repent of sin. God will judge where there is injustice and you can count on it. Make no mistake, this is very much a part of Mary's understanding of God and the way God interacts with the world. Very much. That's why we see it here in the Magnificat. That's why we see these two themes emerge. God is merciful and he extends mercy, right? God is righteous and he judges people and nations for their pride. But there's one significant difference between, you know, say, the time of Genesis 3 and leading up to Mary and, and the present day. We exist in an age of God's kingdom. We live under a new covenant ushered in by Christ. Mary sings of a king that has come, that has come, but is not yet born. She sings while Jesus is in her womb. We sing knowing it is through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ that justice, the justice of God and the mercy of God is on full display. Full display. We sing knowing that salvation for God's people was applied at the cross of Jesus Christ. The judgment of the unrepentant was applied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrated the power of Christ over the evils of this wicked world. Here's the hope from the Magnificat. And really, you know, stepping back, our hope this Advent season. We see what happens when a person who was an object of God's wrath becomes an object of God's mercy. We see that in Ephesians 2. I was an object of God's wrath, but now I'm a child of God. We see how God interacts when one repents and believes in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yes, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see when entire nations and cities repent and become recipients of God's mercy. I think of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. God was about to judge. Jonah preached. They repented. God extended mercy. Christmas is about having faith, like Mary, that the God-man she sang about, this God-man, is the one who extends mercy and judgment. He is your Savior. And He is the Savior of the entire world. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.